I'm Doug Fern, and this is my take on music recording. This is a second half of the conversation I had with engineer, producer, musician, and songwriter Obie O'Brien. Obie is best known for his longtime work with John Bon Jovi, but, as you will hear, he has done many things in his career. We talk about remixing Motown hits, restoring a thousand reels of two-inch tape from the Bon Jovi tours, and his latest venture, a vinyl pressing plant. But we started off talking about his own studio in Pennsylvania. Well, how this came about was, I'm hanging out with John one night, and uh, we're having dinner, and he goes, listen, let's, let's sell the studio. I'm like, what? I love that place. He goes, yeah, I know. But he goes, nobody wants to come to Red Bank, New Jersey to record anymore. They want to be in Nashville or New York or London or, you know, they don't want to be here. They don't enjoy it, sell everything. And I, I mean, I was heartbroken. And I remember driving home. I, I mean, I was pissed off and heartbroken at the same time because we opened up the first sanctuary in his home in Rumson in 1988. And then over the years, we did so much music in there. And then other people came in there and recorded. John would let people come and record if they didn't have the money to go someplace else or it was a big artist wanting to get out of, out of the city. So I wrote him like a love letter about the studio. I said, you know what? Just in case you've forgotten, and I, and I listed everything that we had done and, and all the great funny times that we had in there. And he was like, look, I know you bought gear in here and you, you, know, you sold it to me for a nickel. Take the stuff that you want and, and, and I don't want to piecemeal it. Find somebody to come and buy everything. So I came home and talked to my wife. I said, look, I want to buy everything. And she's like, did, did you win the lottery? I mean, do you, have a, do you have a pile of cash I don't know about? I go, no. Uh, I go, let's hawk stuff and let's, uh, let's build a studio here at our home. And it won't be a commercial studio, but we'll work with artists that we think deserve a shot. And she was like, you know, my wife's in the theater, and she does that all the time. She's always helping everybody out. So she gets that. She said, okay, but if you're going to do that, you know, you can't keep hemorrhaging money on all the cars, right? So I said, okay, we'll get rid of the cars, and I'll keep a couple, and then we'll, we'll build the studio. So I went back to John, and I went, all right, so we're going to buy it. And he went, well, you're nuts. I'm not going to sell it to you. This is, this is the dumbest thing you're ever going to do. Didn't you learn anything from your first studio? I said, yeah, but this isn't going to be a business. He goes, oh, well, there's another. Great. So now you're going to have this thing, and it's going to have no income. And, and he was like, listen, man, you're my friend, and I'm not going to sleep good at night if I know you're down there, and you're, I know you're out there with a hammer and nail getting some other mooks just like you to try to help you build this studio. But... Eventually, you know, he came around and, and, and I bought everything and we, we put it in here. I love, you know what? Here's a cool thing about it. Because I equipped it from the first one, I had gear that I had with me forever a bunch of old Poltex LA 2As, 76s, 3As. So I had all this great old gear that it has been with me forever. So all the gear that's here 
is gear that I had or that I purchased when we were building one of the two studios for John. And it was all stuff that I loved. So I got all gear that I love here. And, you know, you've been here. I've got a 16-track 2-inch. I've got a 24-2-inch. I've got a couple of the old Ampeg 440s. Uh, Ampex, not Ampex, that I bought to, to, to mix down the Motown stuff that I, the, those remixes and, uh, and you know, the, the gems that have been hidden away. Uh, so I could go to 15 IPS quarter-inch tape. You know, our buddy Gene Kane has been kind enough to let his 102 mastering half-inch machine sit here. Oh, yeah, the MTRs. And, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. and it, what a wonderful machine that is. Yeah. Um, so I'm surrounded by stuff that I love. I have a pretty substantial mic collection for a non-commercial studio. And I walk out of my kitchen door, and I, you know, I walk 100 and whatever it is, 35 feet, and I'm in the building. Right. Yeah, we should, like, we should point out, Obi, that this is not like your typical studio in the basement. You have a separate building. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, and I, I wanted a, I, I wanted a, a separate building because I, at first I was thinking about putting it in my house, in one half of the living room where the, where the grand piano lives. I go, well, look, we'll move the piano out, and I'll put the console in here. And I can see my wife looking at me like, no, that's not going to happen. I don't I I don't want my life, you know, to have to work around that. And it's it's not a big building. It's it's comfortable, and Basically, what I originally wanted to do is just have a great place where I can mix stuff and listen. And uh, so I don't have a lot of room, but it works for what I need to do. Well, your control room is pretty big, and it sounds really good. Yeah, my control room is like 22 or 23 by 20 or 21, you know, and I've got all the angles in it. So it's a, it's a comfortable sized room to be in, you know. And if you have a few people in there and and they're playing while they're in there, it, it's you're not on top of one another. And of course, I have the television that on one side for football season, so I can watch that. But the one on the other side is for the black and white science fiction movies. So there's always a movie, you know, going in. The, sometimes in the middle of the night, I come out. And I'll just sit out here and play piano or play guitar. Just something will come to you and you just come out. I was going to tell you, I come out here and fire the equipment up, but I don't know how to turn the Pro Tools on. I mean, I can get the lights to come on. Don't get me wrong. I know where that switch is. But to, like, open up the program and make it work, I have no desire to learn it. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you could learn it, but I understand where you're coming from, yeah. Here's the thing. So you've got that big brain in that cranium of yours. Mine is full, and if I learn something new, I know something that I already know how to do is going to fall out of my brain, and how about if it's like knowing how to use a fork, anything. It could be I'm afraid to take the chance to let something else go in there. Well, but, it's true. You know, when, when you get to our age, it, you do tend to say, is this worth my time? I'd have to put into it or not. Yep, yep. I mean, I still love going to my shop and changing the oil in the cars, putting the car on the lift and, and just working on it. I don't care what it is, rotating the tires, doing an oil change, you know, pulling a carburetor off. I still love that. 
I still really love that. But, you know, the new cars, <laughs> you really can't, you really can't, you can change the oil and you can rotate the tires, but you can't work on them. I mean, I sort of, I sort of miss that, but the technology of the cars, what they've been able to do in these cars, and you and I have talked about your car and my car, but the technology that they're, that they have in the cars today is, I mean, just, and you know what? Here's the thing. I admire the electric cars, right? I mean, I look at a Tesla and you go, this is amazing. It's not alive. I'm sorry. It's not alive. I turn the key to my car and it roars and it shakes a little bit. And I go, it's alive. It's talking to me. I don't think I'll ever drive an electric car because I like stuff that leaks a little bit of oil. I like a little noise. But I admire the technology. I really admire the technology. It's like I admire the technology of Pro Tools. I mean, it, this is amazing. We went from having, you know, when, the most, when I started, it was 8 and 16 track. Now you have a gazillion tracks. A gazillion. And I don't know if it's for better or worse. It's just up to the people that are using it. Yeah, there's times when I, some of the people I've worked with for years, we sort of look back nostalgically at when we used to do stuff for track. Yeah. You know, I had a Scully half-inch four-track machine. It was the first multi-track I ever had. And we say, let's do a project. And even though we've got an infinite number of tracks, let's just say we're going to have to do it all on four tracks. Just because that changes the whole way you record. It changes the sound of it. It's, it's, it's a different discipline. Yeah. And, you know, those engineers listen to a record like The Wanderer by Dion and the Belmonts. It's unbelievable. The drum sound is unbelievable. And you realize it's being picked up by all the other mics. But that... What a great sounding record. What a great sounding record. And you used to be able to tell what studio they were done in by the sound of the record. You could hear the ambience and you knew, well, that was Columbia Studios or wherever. And cutting live, you have to get it right the first time. So those engineers are really good because there was no going back. And Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, four track. Those guys were brilliant. I mean, Jeff Emmerich, George Martin. How about the Beatles lucking out and getting George Martin as their producer? Because they were a garage band. Listen to them in the cavern. But I worked with John at uh, George Martin's studio in London, outside of London. I'm just like, you know, I'm some nobody guy. And he said, would you like to have a tour of the studio. And I said, would you mind if I videotaped it? He said, oh no, I'm walking behind George Martin, videotaping George Martin, giving me a tour of the studio. I'm like, this is, this is the greatest day of my life. I couldn't believe it. And he was such a gentleman. He was such a kind person. And when this whole pandemic started, John and I were at Abbey Road, March 1st, last year, 
working with the Invictus Choir. Uh, they were singing on a song that John had put on the new album. Was and, this was uh, this in the Studio One or Studio Two, the big room? Studio Two. We were in Studio Two. So, you know, the first thing I do is go down those long stairs to the floor and get down on my hands and knees and kiss the floor. I know everybody who's walked on that floor, but uh, Prince Harry was coming over because he, he was instrumental in starting the Invictus Games for the uh, injured servicemen and women. And it's really a great thing. And we had 12 people from the larger Invictus Choir that had all been horribly injured. They were unbelievable. And it makes you realize you should just shut, about, shut up about anything you're complaining about because you've gone through nothing compared to what these people have gone through. But Prince Harry was coming in, so I wanted to head out the door quick. I wanted to hit the bathroom. So I run out, and I physically run into Giles Martin. And I took the time, and I said, Giles, I don't know if you remember, John, I he goes, yes, oh, I remember when you were there. I said, your dad, and he just said, that was my father. He was a gentleman, and he was kind to people, and he took time. You know, that guy, you realize the Beatles would have been something totally different without his influences. You know, he made such a huge difference in the music of the Beatles, and he helped them go places that they didn't even know existed. And to listen to those records, especially Sgt. Pepper, four-track, the stuff that they had to think way in advance. I mean, they're thinking, they're thinking two days ahead because there's no fixing it. You put it down and it's there. So I admire that. And I, I've done live recording of large orchestras and stuff. And it, you, like again, you, you gotta pay attention to a lot of stuff. There's a lot of meters dancing around. And you, you're listening to make sure nothing's crapping out. You want to make sure every, the level's good going to whether tape or, you know, digitally. And, and you, you've got to be conscious of the phase relationship with all these microphones that you have up. You know, sometimes you look at the phase meter, it's, it looks like a windshield wiper. You go, well, that's not good. But, you know, those early engineers, the guys doing Frank Sinatra records. And I'll, I'll tell you, I was mastering one of the Bon Jovi records one time with George Marino at Sterling. And I, I love George Marino, and he did a lot of our records. And I got there early, and he invited me in, and he was remastering some Dean Martin stuff. And when I tell you, when he put that stuff up, it filled the room. And you could hear, you could hear the trombones behind the saxophones. I mean, the, the spatial placement of the instruments, you could close your eyes and you could see where everyone was sitting. It was unbelievable. Two-track. Yeah. Two-track. Right. Live. Right. Two-track. Right. At Capitol, Dean probably, Martin, right? Yeah, Capitol. Dean Martin's behind a, a gobo with a window in it, and he's singing into some great tube microphone, whatever it was. But those guys, they're the guys I call the real engineers. You know, like a guy like Putnam. <laughs> I mean, you're in both, you live in both worlds. You build 
equipment that everyone around the world who records knows your equipment. But you also record. You're in both worlds. You know, I'm, I'm that's way too, that's, my, my brain would just collapse. You know, if I have somebody good running the recording process, the capture process, I can just pay attention. I have enough focus to, you know, to get through it. But those guys, those early guys, I mean, they're building consoles and recording, engineering, producing, building studios, building consoles, because there were no consoles. You know, in the 50s and 60s, you didn't go to SSL and go, oh, send me one of these over. These things were hand-built. And you go, those guys were really the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant engineers. And they were engineers on both sides. Like, you're, an, you're, you're a, a technical electrical engineer as well as a recording engineer. And I, I can't, I couldn't do both of them. But I admire guys like you that can build amazing stuff. You know, you're sitting around, you know, one night eating your tacos on Taco Tuesday and go, hey, I got this great idea for, and then boom, you go out and you figure it out. Well, that's yeah, it sounds easy, doesn't it? Um. Yeah, it's, I know it's not, but it's like <laughs> that inspiration. And then, you know, it's, it, it's the travel after that's the journey from like, hey, why don't I try to build this? Yeah. Well, you know, Obi, everything in every one of my products was uh, something I wanted for myself because I wasn't happy with what was out there. Right. They were just tools to me. And I'm just completely delighted that there's enough people in the world that hear like I do to, to make, a, make a living doing it. You know, I, it's very selfish. It's the stuff I needed for my own use. Well, and you know, it's funny. It's like, you've been to my studio and you've seen my rack. So in there, I have an Altec 1591A compressor, 1969, 1970. It's their first foray into solid state. It sounds unbelievable on the bass. I can't explain it to you. But it makes the bass jump out of the speakers. Everything else I've ever tried to put in it, it sounds like shit. But it sounds amazing for that one thing. And I love when you find those gadgets. And I mean, I used to buy these things for $50, $75. You know, now you see them on eBay and people go, Altec, $15.91. Abbey Road, The Beatles, and you go, no, 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 that's not quite right. But, and people, and the prices have skyrocketed, and people are buying them. And you go, wow, because the people don't know, they don't research it. You know, they, somebody will say, oh, I know they did something with some Altec compressor, you know. Of course, it was an Altec 436 that the EMI engineers re-engineered. And because this Altec stuff, as you know, was for telephone use and for civil defense. So if the Ruskies dropped the bomb, those giant horns on top of buildings, when they were telling you, you know, duck and cover, it's going through that compressor so it doesn't explode the driver. That's what they were made for. You know, and here we are, we're, ta we're, we're taking it into studios with all kinds of 
gear worth all kinds of money and just saying, you know, I wonder if it'll work on this. And you just keep putting crap through it. You know, well, the snare drum doesn't work. Bass drum doesn't work. Guitar, ooh, it's horrible on guitar. You put the bass in there and you go, magic. Yep, I find that's true with microphones. You know, every time I get a oh, new yeah. mic, you know, I spend like the next, well, these days it's even longer because there's so few sessions. But, you know, you say, I wonder what it would do on this. I wonder what it would do on that, you know. So same sort of thing. And, you know, the, the fascination with the old vintage Neumann mics and all, which are great, but, but... They don't sound like they did when they were new. Right. And then and no two sound the same. And no two sound the same. And most of them have been repaired or modified. And when we were doing the sessions at Abbey Road, I remember reading one of the books, something about when a microphone got pulled into a session, they would lock it because they wanted to know how many hours the tube was on. So, you know, the... The, the assistant who was great over there said, uh, it'll be, what would you like? I go, I want the Beatle mics. Doesn't everybody who come in here? And he goes, yes. And they brought out all these Neumanns. And I said, there's this great picture of John Lennon and Paul McCartney standing across from one another. And John Lennon's playing the Gibson. He goes, it's that mic right there. <laughs> I took, I think I showed you some of my mic pictures. I took like 50 pictures of the microphones in a stand. Yeah, I know. I did the same thing when I was there. You, you can't help yourself. <laughs> right. Nobody cares but you and me. You know, you show right. it to people and their eyes are glazing over. Right. But knowing what music they made. Right. And, you know, there's iconic shots of the Beatles. And I stood on that stairway coming down from the control room and I go, the drums were right there. I mean, for me and for you, it's, you go, it's, and here's the thing. People don't realize Abby, EMI Studios opened up in uh, 1931. In 10 years, that place is 100 years old. Columbia Studios that opened in New York in 1948 lasted until 1984, right? These studios, the power station, you know, they shine real bright and then it's gone. Media Sound, all those studios, they have their moment in the sun, but to have a studio that's going to be a hundred years old and is booked out a year. I mean, good luck getting in there and good luck getting in the studio too. But, but again, the, the people at Abbey Road are so wonderful. And the woman who manages over there, Fiona, is a sweetheart, the kindest, nicest woman. And they go out of the way to help you any way they can. And I mean, that's what's great. Here's this place that's iconic, that can, you know, they could be real dicks about it and go, you know, we're Abbey Road, but they're not. They, they act like they've just opened and they just want to do music because they love it. And everyone there loves it. You talk to everyone. You talk to the guy at the desk. I sat and talked to the guy at the front desk for two hours one night after we were done. And he's a musician, and he just wants to be there. He doesn't care what he's doing. He wants to feel that energy. And yeah, he's there, hoping... There's something about walking into Studio 2 that even if yes. you had no idea of the history of that, anybody you know with any kind of musical sense would feel that room. Yeah. 
And e- yeah. even though it's not a particularly comfortable room, it's... No, it's, it's small, and you're sideways to the window. And to see, to see anybody, you have to stand up to look down, because they're far down. But it's magic. It's just that magic room, you know? And, and it's like the first time I went to Motown and went through that studio, you go, okay, it's not really the studio. The magic came from someplace else there. You know, the engineers, the producers, the writers, the artists, the stuff they did. And when you go into that room, and so I do a lot of those Motown remixes, right? And you'll put, and a lot of them are three track. So you put up, you put up the drum track. And it's, a lot of times it's the bass and the drums. Now, Jamerson took his bass direct. But when you put up some of the other instruments, if they were live that day, you can hear there's a bass amp somewhere. It's playing because you hear the leakage. But everything was direct. And they had that direct box on the wall, that wall of direct box where everybody just plugged in. So they're going, your guitar is too loud. We got to turn you down. You got magic for those jazz musicians to go in there and make that iconic music. And people to this day try to emulate those guitar riffs. It, it's just magic. Sun Studios is the same way. You, you would walk in there and go, wow, this is unbelievable. Just all those smaller kind of rooms that just the magic happened, and it's the people that make the magic happen. Sure. It's the people. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, how would you like to have been behind the window the first time Elvis did That's All Right Mama? You'd lose your mind. And, and, and I've been lucky enough to have those moments where I'm in the studio and we do something and you go, the first time I heard Living on a Prayer, I went, oh. I mean, you go to a sporting event, you, you go to a wedding, you go to a prom, you hear Living on a Prayer. I don't care where you are. I don't care where you are around the world. People know that song. How about that? That's just unbelievable. And, and John's talked about it. He didn't want to put it on the record. Cooler heads prevailed. <laughs> you know, Richie Sambora is like, oh, let me tell you something, my friend. That's the magic, man. That's just the magic that happens in the room. Because the room, you know, I, I, I used to always want to think that my room at my big studio in Philly, it was alive. It had, but it wasn't. It's just this thing with dead trees that you've put up, right? And, and what happens is the people come in and they bring it to life. It's the people that come in and make it come to life. So you don't need the biggest room. You don't need the greatest equipment. You don't need a $25,000 microphone or a $25,000 Fairchild because there's plenty of magic that happens for a dollar. Listen to Louie Louie by the Kingsmen. You know, I love that song, but when you listen to it, I, I am convinced that the drummer's headphones fell off about 16 measures into it because the roll is over the, the vocal during the guitar solo. He, he's taking a, a drum solo, and sometimes it feels like somebody just took the set and kicked it down the basement stairs. But it's magic. It's, 
that's just magic. The, the Sonics have love will travel, you know, magic, leakage everywhere. You know, I, it's just the Beach Boys records. I am amazed by the Beach Boys records. That group of musicians, Hal Blaine on drums, and you read, he would do 10 sessions a day. <laughs> you know, but it was just when they got together, it was magic, 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 magic. Motown, magic, Beatles, it, you know, Otis Redding and those musicians, all the Stax records. I mean, geez, it's a lot of magic going on. Yeah, I'll say. Well, I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the remix Motown records that you're working on because I was over there one time. You played me some of the tracks and we soloed this and that and you know talk about magic that it, it was just indescribable to hear those individual tracks and most of them I guess were three or four track most of them when you were here they were three tracks so <clears throat> the first Martha Reeves and the Vandellas a couple years ago came out with the 50th anniversary like all the his. And Harry Wenger, who is the legacy A&R guy at Universal, because Universal owns the hard assets of Motown. And Harry had been with the record company since, like, when John signed, it was Mercury. You know, then it went through all those incarnations of, you know, whoever. But, you know, the, the buildings pretty much stayed, the address is same, the same. And he said to me, would you be interested in doing these Motown remixes? I'm like, are you kidding? So Martha Rees and the Vandellas, I'm looking at all these songs, and I said, can I remix Dancing in the Streets? And I, I can't remember for sure, but I think he said, well, do a stereo mix, because I don't think there is a stereo mix of it. And the reason I wanted to do that is because I used to dance to that song at Shavu, when the geeter with the heater, the boss with the hot sauce, had the record hops down there in Upper Darby at Shavu. So, you know, you, you put up track three, and here it's, uh, I guess it's Benny Benjamin on drums, Jamerson on bass, and then you put up track two, and it's all the guitars, piano, horns, and then you put up track one, and it's the vocal and that amazing two and four and dance in the streets. <laughs> so, which is the craziest thing to put on a vocal track. And, and so, you, so you have these tracks and you can't go, well, I'm going to make these better. Because you're not going to make them better. They were brilliant to begin with. And there's a legacy involved. So don't think, I don't care who you are, don't think you're going to do something that's better than these legacy songs. So I tried to use all the older EQ. I used the Pultex. I used the Lang. You know, some of those older EQs and the LA-2A. But I was able to, like, bring the horns out a little more, you know, which I liked. I, I, like I said, you, you're not going to make them better than they were. But I got to work on these songs. So forever, my name is on those Motown records. Pretty Which cool. Is, That's pretty cool. Well, the thing that we do that gives us the tiniest bit of immortality 
is we make these records, and then at some point, somebody listens to something and go, yeah, I wonder who did that. And if they go and look at the credits, you're on there, which is unbelievable. But the fact that I got to mix records that I used to dance to when I was young, you know, that, that's crazy. And, I, you know, I'm, t- I'm telling the guy, the Motown people about, yeah, so I go to this record hop, and they're like, yeah, great. But to me, it meant something because you go to Chevu with Jerry Blavitt, the geeter with the heater, the boss with the hot sauce, my man, pots and pans. I guess I can stop now. I guess I've got enough of the geeter in there. But I remember going to those dances and there'd be 1,500 kids doing the stroll or the stomp or, and, and the music was rocking the building and it's like, oh, it's so great. Yeah. Well, I remember, Obi, when, when you were playing me something you were working on, one of the Motown tracks, and you said, listen to this, and I forget what the song was now, but it was some classic that everybody knows. And you said, listen, there's stuff in here that I bet you never knew was in there. Yeah. And you somehow managed to bring them out and not to change the original sound of the record at all, but it just brought stuff out that were, were new things to amaze you. Again, I tried to be very careful with it, but, you know, you would find those gems in there and you would find, like, especially when they went to A-track stuff, there's a whole track of, like, strings or horns that you've never heard before, didn't make the record. And you pull that up, that's the stuff that you go, wow. So I've, and I've loved doing the Motown stuff. You know, some of the artists, they still have to get approval to release it. You know, like, like Stevie Wonder is one of them. The thing is, you're working on this stuff, and you know they're going to play this for Stevie Wonder. You know, Stevie Wonder doesn't know me, but he's going to listen to something that I did on one of his songs. And he could say, oh, it sucks, or yeah, let, let's do it. You know, and, and I love a, a lot of the songs that I did on, that, on those box sets. Like, I leave the front and the rear end on it. You know what I mean? So you hear the guy go, one, two, three, and you hear them start. And then at the end, you hear the song sort of fall apart, and musicians are talking to each other, or the artist is talking to someone in the control room. And I do that because that would be what I wanted to hear if I found some new Beatles thing. Somebody goes, hey, we've got this great thing where they're talking to each other after at the end of Paperback Writer. I'm going to buy it. So... When we did the box set for Bon Jovi, same thing. We, you know, we were like, we're not going to put any hits on this. We're going to empty the vault out of every demo that never made it. And I left the talking in because I knew the fans would love it because that's what I love. And I figured that's the Motown people. If they love Motown, they're going to want to hear the producer talking to them. Or they're going to want to hear the drummer saying something to the control room at the end of the song. It's like... You get to be more a part of it, you know? You're, that now, now you're in the studio with them. That has been one of the coolest things I've ever gotten to do. Thank you, Harry Wenger. Yeah, and I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Smokey Robinson, uh, probably on probably an 8-track, where he was, his vocal was completely isolated. 
You remember that? You played that for yes. me? And it yes. was just Be- like, wow, why don't we have singers Could- like that? <laughs> right. And here's the thing. You, you'd have two vocal tracks. One made the record. One didn't. Yeah. Whether it was a lyric problem, because you put it up and the vocal is phenomenal, both of them. And it's like they got to pick from two unbelievable vocals. And you realize these singers were, you know, I mean, I've put Marvin Gaye stuff up and I just go, unbelievable. This is unbelievable. You know, it's Motown. I mean, the only thing that would top that is if anybody ever called me and said, uh, you know, we want you to do something on one of this, these Beatle tracks. And I don't know if I would do it because I would know that I would die the next day. You know, that because that, that's how the universe works. Look, people would always say to me, oh, you have this great job and you travel around there. I go, yeah, the Eagles haven't won a Super Bowl. And that's all I ever wanted. And then after they won, I'm like, oh, shit. You know, I bet you I, I, get, yeah, I get like hit by a bus tomorrow. So I was very careful for that week after the, the Super Bowl win. You know, it's, it's, again, it's that magic of that music. I got to, I mean, those records collectively, those artists, you know, Diana Ross, Stevie Wonder, I, I, I mean, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. I, I mean, you could, go, you could go on and on and on about all the great artists, and they were all phenomenal. And I got, I got to do a bunch of them and put my name on. Yeah. What an opportunity. Yeah, and then Harry, Harry Wenger, he also taught a class in New York. He knows more about Motown than any human being I've ever spoke to. And he is a guy who's music-driven. He, he does his job because he loves the music. Right, which is what, you what know? it should be. Yes, he's like us. And, and a lot of times, you know, people slag people at the record companies. And, and I've been around the guys that shouldn't be doing music at those record companies, right? We've all been around them. Yeah. You go, how did this guy get this job? He shouldn't be doing this. But Harry's one of those guys who understands the music. And like he'll call me up and go, hey, remix that. You know, the snare drum's not bright enough. Listen to the original records, and, and he's absolutely right. So, you know, it's a labor of love. Well, look, I'll be completely switching directions here. I wanted to just talk a little bit about your latest venture, which is building a vinyl pressing plant. Well, <clears throat> so my buddy, Phil Niccolo, who we've talked about and you know, I love that guy. He has been talking about vinyl for years. It was really his baby. I remember saying to him one day, I go, look, if if you really want to do this, I'll do this with you. He took me up on it. I was like, shit, now what do I do? Um, But we looked around for a building. You know, we were looking at the gear because there's a couple companies now that make brand new pressing units that are beautiful. It's not like, (laughs) you ever see pictures of the the pressing plants in the 50s and Uh, the 60s? yeah, Yeah, you don't want to go in there. No, they look like the coal miners yeah. who were coming out of the West Virginia coal mines. <clears throat> you know, it was a dirty, dirty, filthy job. But now there's companies making these pressing units that are run with like Siemens computers, and you can dial everything in right to make a beautiful record 
because there's a lot that goes on. A lot of heat, a lot of cold, a lot of hydraulic pressure. So we're looking at buildings and looking at buildings. I happen to walk in a building that's in the vicinity of my, the town where I live. And it was a beauty salon. And I walk into the back area that's this, this big open area. And I walk in there and there's a thousand record albums up on the wall. I'm like, what? The woman who ran the place loved music. So she had like a little stage in the back there and a couch and a record player and, and speakers. And it was like a, a collage of things. There were a couple Harley Davidson sitting back there. There was a big Generac generator in a box. But they would go back there and listen to music. I go over to the one main wall, and in the middle of that wall is Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. And I got my phone, and I FaceTimed Phil Niccolo. And I just, I didn't say a word to him. I just spun the camera around, and he went, okay, well, I guess we know where we're going to be building the building. So we took, we took that place, and opening a business during a pandemic, it turns out, my friend, is not the smartest thing you can do. Because we ordered the machine from Germany, and of course, that factory gets shut down, COVID, and then people are ill, and, you know, and so they're three and a half months late getting to us. And it's just been like that. But it's not about making a bazillion dollars. We're not going to have, you know, 14 record pressing machines. That You know, Jack White has that at Three Man Records in Detroit, and it's... You know, it's a beautiful thing, but we want to do the more boutique stuff, like records that we love, people that want special things on the record, you know, because you can make a black vinyl record in 29 seconds and put it into a sleeve and put it into a, a, a cover and all, and, and that's great because it, it's, it's a vehicle for people to listen to music. But we're hoping to do more boutique kind of stuff where it's specialty records and it's maybe different vinyl and they want to do a little they want to do a heavier vinyl they want we want to be the best at what we do and and Phil's Phil bought a lathe so he's going to start cutting also which is I'm like man are we too old to learn new stuff I, I don't think I would take the chance but he bought the lathe but we both have a background of working with a lot of artists and doing a lot of records over the years. And he he is so passionate about it, it's crazy. He's there today painting, painting, up on a ladder, painting. And as much as I love all of this, I'm not going to go paint. I, I, I won't paint my house. I'm not going to go, I just, you know, that's like the last thing I want to do. But he's immersed in it. So... We've got this very cool building. We got great gear. And I think we're going to be pressing records by the middle of April, it looks like. And I mean, you know what? It's, it's, it's science and voodoo. Those molds that make the record, they get heated up to like 600 degrees. And you smash down this, this vinyl puck. And then before it releases, water comes through there at 66 degrees. Imagine down to the molecular structure what's going on with that metal. I mean, heat, 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 cold, 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 heat, heat. 
It's an amazing process. And again, I, the thing that's cool about it is it's a physical process. You know, you, you reach in and you grab that puck. You put the label facing outward, put the puck, put the label facing up, boom. I guarantee you, Phil Niccolo will be in that building pushing the buttons. You know, you, you have to push two buttons at the same time because they want to make sure you're not an idiot and have your arm in there. Like you're, He wants to record the band, mix the band, cut the acetate, send it out, get it plated, and then make the record. He wants to do from A to Z. Yeah, good for him. That's great. Yeah, I mean, and he's, he's I love it that he's got that thing that he just wants to see it through from, from the start to the finish. I love vinyl. So just, and you know, I've got, as you know, I've got jukeboxes in my house. I, I said, we have to buy the molds for the seven inch for 45s. I want to be able to make 45s. Because, you know, there's a couple records from different bands and they never made them as singles. You know what I mean, Doug? So I'm going to be able to make 10 of those records so I can put it in my jukebox. Yeah. Well, there's a sound. Yeah, there's a sound of 45s. It's different than the regular vinyl album. It just sounds different. I got up this morning, Doug. I came in with the new puppy, who's a terrorist. Uh, I got a bowl of Cheerios. I sat at the booth, and I played F2, Laudie, Laudie, Miss Claudie, by Elvis Presley. That's how I started my day today. Everything is all right with the world. Yeah, your your jukebox just sounds so great. Man, and you look at you look at the inside of that thing, and it was built in 1955, and it's basically all original, and it's still running. And you go, they made stuff so great back then. They just did. They made stuff that was going to last forever. Yeah, but there's just something oh, about the low end in a jukebox that you just No kidding. I don't, and, nothing you know, else sounds like that. Nope. Nope. There's something, there's a sound to the jukebox that nothing else gives you. And it's, and also, you know, I mean, the, the distortion from that needle that's basically a nail on a, on an arm that's being pulled in by a spring, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. And we are so lucky. There's a guy in Upper Darby, uh, Val Shively's, R&B Records. He has 4 million 45s in there. And here's the thing. I bought records from him, like on the Gordy label, like Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. They're brand new. They've never been played because the, the jobbers would go to like a mom and pop store like my father's and go, here's the new Elvis record. How many do you want? And they'd go, well, give us 10 or they give us 20. What they had left over at the end of the day, they all did this. They went home and they threw these records in a box. And as these people retired or passed away and the family were getting rid of records, he went and bought all this stuff. So he has brand new records from the 50s and the 60s. That's amazing. I mean, it's like a mecca. And I love walking in that store because it's just, you can smell it. And he loves music. Val Shively loves music and he knows where every record is and you you ask for a record and i'll go well do you want it on the adco label or do you want it on the cb i mean it's crazy what's in this guy's head i don't know how he does it 
That's amazing. I had no idea he was still around. That's great. Right, right down there in 69th Street, right? And I love going down there and seeing him. And I'll tell you how famous Val, Val Shively is. When we did Wembley the last time, I had a Val Shively shirt on, and we were staying down in Soho, and I went to a record store in there, and the guy behind the counter saw my Val Shively shirt and lost his shit. He went, I said, well, I've got pictures of Val. He made me show him the pictures I had on my phone of Val Shively and his, his store. So I love that. They're preserving something that people have tried to throw away more than once. And it's, it's like us, Doug. <laughs> and we're still here. <laughs> we're still here. <laughs> we're still here, God damn it. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Hey, can we give a plug to our new vinyl place? Yeah, sure. You can go to the website. It's Studio 4, that's the number 4, vinyl.com. Well, one more thing I wanted to talk about uh, briefly is all those two-inch masters you have from the Bon Jovi tours and what, how you're restoring those. I think that's a really fascinating process. Well, as you know, all the companies... You know, they were changing their formulas in the 70s, late 70s and 80s because they wanted to be able to record hotter just to make the signals and noise better. But basically, you know, you're trying to explain to people that here's this two-inch piece of mylar that's real thin, and then there's a slurry that has iron oxide in it, you know, because that's going to accept that fairly weak magnetic signal from the head, and then there's a binding agent that puts those two together. And as we all know, over the years, there was a thing called the sticky shed syndrome. So you would put a tape on a machine, and before your eyes, it would physically fall apart. And I have seen two-inch tape machines get stopped, you know, jam up so bad from this stuff, it stops. And you can see it like it's going to snap the tape. So what you have to do to to bring these back so you can play them is bake them. And what that does is reinvigorates the binding agent. It gets rid of all the moisture. So once you do that, you can, you can play them again. And I, I'm not sure how long it lasts. Somebody says three months, somebody says six. And then the whole thing is baking them. What's the best way to bake them? Well, you read and like, well, you got to get this certain company scientific oven because it holds it within one-tenth of a degree. I'm going, oh, that's pretty impressive, but they're pretty expensive. I happened to be going through the internet one night, and I found the patent that Ampex took out on it, which is because it's just a, you're baking the tapes. I mean, how do you patent that? I, don't, I didn't quite get it. You know, what are they, they going to stand at everybody's kitchen and make sure you're not using mom's oven to bake a tape? But as I got into it and I found some other stuff, they were experimenting, and they were throwing it in like a convection oven where the, where the temperature swung 12, 13 degrees. So I realized it doesn't have to be so precise. I did some tests. So I took my heat gun, my temperature gun that I use, like when we're working on an engine, I'll go to each one of the exhaust pipes coming out. And you can look and say, well, this, one, this one's running real cool. This one's running real hot. So once you get them in an oven... It's like having a piece of iron in there. So it absorbs all this heat. Even if the oven comes down a few degrees, 
that thing doesn't change. Yeah. You know what I mean? It retains the heat. True. Yeah, so true. it's all that mass. It's all that mass. And I mean, pick up a two-inch reel of tape. It's heavy. Yeah. It's like picking up a barbell. Yeah. So I'm looking around at all this stuff, and I see in the Sunday paper an ad for, you know that Cabela's place? It's like people go there that hunt and fish. They have a food dehydrator that goes to 160 degrees. And I'm looking at it. I said, we got to go look at this. Drive down to Delaware, look at one. I realized if I redo the shelving, I can put eight two-inch tapes in there. And I, I bake them at about 145 degrees. I put it on. I bake them for nine hours, right? I put the timer on. So at midnight, I'll go in and put eight in, put the timer on, because you want them to cool down naturally. You don't want to just pull them out. Because, you know, then you know, you've got these difference in heat and cold temperatures, you're going to get moisture again. So leave them cooled down naturally in the oven. So every 12 hours, I can do eight reels of tape. So I went to Cabela's and bought a $499 oven that people dry like deer meat and, and apricots. And it works great. I can set the temperature. I can set the time. I can, I can walk away from it. The first day, I wanted to make sure it didn't burn the house down, and it didn't. I can do it with that. So I'm doing all the two-inch tapes that are on 10-inch reels because I can't fit the giant reels on my tape machine. But then we have so many formats, you know, the Sony 3324, the Sony 3348. We have Mitsubishi 32 track. Remember that for like a minute? Yeah. That was the hot thing. Yeah. Uh, Believe it or not, a lot of the mobile trucks in Europe were using the Mitsubishi 32. Still? And of course, Nashville. To this day? Well, they still have them. They don't use yeah. them, but they still have them tucked well, you away probably, someplace. Yeah, you saw those at Abbey Road in the hallway there. Yeah. They had every yeah. tape machine ever made. Ever made. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's an overwhelming amount of work. So, well, you know, how many, we've been going how through many, it. How many reels total do you have? Oh, a thousand. I mean, there were a couple tours we took. We had we bought a thirty three forty eight and we took it out on tour with us for three or four tours. I mean, that thing held up. That that those Sony's were indestructible because in the old days, you know, you did it with two twenty four track. In the early days, it was one twenty four track machine. Then you were locking two of them up, and you know, I'd be walking through airports with those. The, the 14 inch reels and those blue plastic, you know, you're carrying somebody, your fingers are going to break off and you got to go, you're trying to go through customs and explain what they are. And, but I, I've got some mad, I've found some magic stuff that will come out over the next couple of years, like a, a, a show in Jakarta that you sort of forgot about, but it's magic. It was just one of those nights where everything was unbelievable. So as we archive, we listen. And then, you know, I've been making notes, and I found, I found songs that never made any records. I thought I had used it up when, we did the t- when I did the box set. But I bet you I have 20 songs that no one has ever heard and even the guys forgot about. You know, when the guys don't remember them, that's the, that's the ones you want to use because nobody remembers recording the song. 
it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Well, good. I'm glad you're preserving that for the future. You know, you can love Bon Jovi or you can hate him. You know, I, I hate that he sort of gets stuck with bearing the crucifix for hair bands in the 80s. You know, because most of those bands fell by the wayside. And he grew as an artist. You know, it's not, we're, you know, he's not writing Runaway again. You know, some of the songs are beautiful. And when I have young artists here, and, and I talk to them about the art of songwriting, and I go, you know, you, people say there are two camps. There's the cinematic camp and there's a conversational. YouTube, you know, Bloody Sundays of cinematic Unbelievable thing. Bob Dylan was, was conversational. He was speaking to you. But I, I make them listen to a song like Bed of Roses. The way that lyric and that first verse, just you can close your eyes and you can see, you can picture what he's saying. And, and you know, whatever you think, it's, it's more than just the music they make. It's the person that they are. And what, what else do they do for the world? You know, he has done way more than put money in his pocket. He, ha he has helped untold amounts of people. And I have seen it where he, you know, not, I'm not saying write a check and here you go, go away. Got involved and helped people in terrible situations. He's always done it. His wife has always done it. So he, you know, his music will live on. You know, you know, when you look at how many people, how many, you know, tens of millions of people we have played in front of, you know, we did those, you do those shows, it's 200,000 people, 160,000 people. It's, it's unbelievable. When a band can do an entire tour, stadiums, not arena, stadiums, from one end of the world in, in 2019, we started in Moscow, came across Europe, went down and ended in Israel. Nothing but stadiums. There's something going on there. There's some magic, and there's a reason why these people keep coming back. Yeah, sure. And, and you know, he personally has sort of set a really high bar for people in positions like he, he's in to, you know, as an example of how you should treat the world. I mean, he's in a position to do it, and he does. He doesn't have to, but he does. Yes, for being as famous as he is, and, you know, that's a weird word to you, but, you know, he's very much still a regular Joe, you know? And the thing for me is I still see that 18-year-old kid, you know? I carry such a large part of that around, and he, like I said, you know, thank you, John Bon Jovi. I have not said that enough, but I, I'm very lucky to have been part of this and, and uh He's part of musical history. His first record came out in like 84, I believe. So here we are. This, a lot of time has gone by, and it's not over yet. So you have artists like Elton John, Billy Joel, The Stones. I mean, there's not that many. You can count them. How many artists have had a run like this where they're not playing, you know, a dinner theater? They're still putting records out. And they're still playing huge concerts because that many people want to come and see them. This guy has made a lot of great music, has made a lot of people happy, and he's done things to make the world a better place. 
And there's not many people that can say that. Obi, thank you so much for doing this. I think... Doug, it has been a blast. Thank you for asking me, Doug. I, you know, I'm looking at my phone. I think I sent you a picture of it. Doug Fern, genius. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to try to live up to that someday. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have. I think you have. I've been talking with my longtime friend, Obi O'Brien. I don't think I know anyone who is more enthusiastic about the art of making and recording music than Obi. Thanks to all of you who have subscribed to this podcast on the various podcasting apps. You can reach me at dwfern at dwfern.com with your comments and suggestions. This is my take on music recording. I'm Doug Fern. See you next time.